Hello and welcome to today's TRADOC Leader Professional Development Program webinar. I'm your moderator, Jim Heft of TRADOC's Communication Directorate, and today's session is all about resiliency. JP Lane is an inspirational speaker, performer, author, and Purple Heart recipient. Most importantly to us here, he's a soldier for life. JP joined the Army in 2008 at the age of 20 as a combat engineer, deployed to Afghanistan in 2010, and after two escapes of an improvised explosive device, the third IED seriously injured him on July 2nd, 2011. It was the first IED to penetrate an RG-31 truck and sent JP on his current journey that he will speak about with us today. JP, thank you so much for being here uh, and talking to us about adapting and overcoming. Thank you, it's an honor to be here. Also hosting today's session is TRADOC's Command Sergeant Major, Daniel Hendricks, who is here again also with me uh, in the studio. And Command Sergeant Major, uh, you and JP go back a little ways. We do. Sir, it's always good to see you again and be with you. JP, always an honor to see you. And really, as we, we kind of talk about starting this off, um, I actually had the honor of meeting JP about three years ago in Afghanistan as he was on his journey uh, in, at the time, a, a program they had put together called Operation Proper Exit, which allowed our, our wounded warriors to come back and really help them leave uh, the country in which they had such a this incident happen to them, and more importantly, let them leave on their own terms. And so I, I've, ever since that day, and I got to see you speak and uh, have been engaged with you ever since, uh, I'm truly excited to be here with you today, brother. Yeah. That's awesome. So before we start uh, diving into the conversation and turn it over to just have a, a conversation over this, this, uh, this table today, um, I do want to talk to all of you out there in the audience. Uh, yes, here uh, I am monitoring your questions as they're coming in over Facebook uh, and I've got a team of really smart people watching the watch page as well. So if you have a question for JP or the Sergeant Major, go ahead and leave them there um, and let's, uh, let's keep that conversation going. And also the conversation needs to go uh, into your squad or unit. We're gonna talk about some serious things here today. And I think, you know, you gotta ask each other the tough questions within your squad and unit as well. So with that, um, I'm gonna turn it over to Command Sergeant Major to start this conversation. Awesome. So, so as we kind of talked about, um, you know, we do this, and if the boss was here, General Funk, this would probably be one of the opening things he'd kind of want to hear from you. And I think it, it not only is going to start this conversation off in the right direction, but it actually will continue uh, through a theme that we find with most soldiers that join. And so, you know, when the, when the boss gives uh, a soldier a coin for incentivizing uh, their great effort, he asks them two simple questions, right? Why did you join? And then more importantly, why do you continue to serve? And although you're not actively in the military, we all know you continue to serve. So I just, let's start off with those two questions uh, because I think they'll help us frame this thing out. Right, so I joined only because as an eighth grader, I saw the Twin Towers fall. And something inside me just said that when I'm old enough, I need to serve so that, that I could be a part of that never happening again. It was a devastating moment, as we all remember. And when the towers fell, it just, and the dust settled and my tears settled, I knew I was gonna serve this country and I was gonna do it to the best capacity that I possibly could. And serving this nation has been one of my greatest honors that even when I medically retired from the Army, I was, I knew that I was still wanted to serve. And I'm still breathing, I still have air in my lungs, so I will continue to do that until I'm gone. And I'm pretty sure if we talk to Recruiting Command, we still don't take eighth graders uh, in, in the, the Army, Army today. Correct. So I just I was, I want to put I that could. out there so we all understand that. I had to wait, right. <laughs> we'll talk, talk about the pro your, your growing up years. You know, I mean, Army, obviously, uh, you saw the Twin Towers fall, uh, was important to you. But what else was important to you as you were, you were looking at who the future J.P. Lane might be? Well, as a kid, nothing. Uh, probably the normal kid stuff, sports, girls, all that. Uh, but Music? 
Music, definitely. Uh, the funny thing was I would go into, uh, after coming home from school, I would go into my room and my dad would still be working. And so I'd be able to crank my radio up as loud as I wanted. And I would pretend I was a rock star in front of that mirror for like three hours until he got home and chewed me out for having, having the music so loud and then get back to homework. But music was always a passion. My dad sang, uh, he did the Nashville thing and uh, play, plays guitar and all that stuff. He's even on the worship team today at his church. And um, so music has always been a passion. I just never realized that it was going to be something bigger for me so than I thought, at least. So and just to be fair here, um, there are some other really good stories of your childhood that you may want to share with oh, the team goodness. here. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I may have talked to your brother. Uh, and he, My brother? <laughs> and he, he kind of explained to me when you were in Marriott, Ohio, about four to five years old, um, that as you guys were doing like a little camping trip out in the backyard, that between the two of you, you hatched this plan uh, that was about kind of making some money. And so you, you went to the, the front of the house where you opened up the mailbox and you found some checks that had come in and, and you'd kind of decided at about midnight that you two were going to walk to the bank. Um, and so it was, a, it was just a very interesting story as he described the early days of uh, J.P. Lane. And I, I thought it was a, a great story that was really touching as he kind of went through that. Well, I'm sure that uh, as kids, we saw that these checks turned into cold, hard cash and you can buy stuff with it. So we were like, well, why don't we do that first before the adults get it? We didn't realize how they exactly worked, but the, the trip to the bank did not go very well for us. Uh, I'm pretty sure it ended with a police officer bringing us home and knocking on the front door and our dog at the time almost chewing his arm off. <laughs> so... Yeah. It was an interesting, yes, moment. Boy, those are, you know, welcome to middle America. Right. Yeah. So what was, what was your Army plan? Um, you know, you, you enlisted and, you know, you find yourself in Afghanistan. Your combat engineer was, was it, hey, I want to do a 20-year, 20, 30-year career? Or, you know, was music still in the back of your mind? Is something maybe you might be able to do for a living? What, what were your thoughts? No, I, uh, so I had a strategic plan actually when I joined. Uh, first I went reserve knowing that I could have a eight year contract and still um, not necessarily be full time but uh, travel and work elsewhere as um, I desired. So I signed up as a reservist initially and my plan after that was to go active uh, become a sergeant major <laughs> and um, stay in the army until I was gone, pretty much. My goal was to be 100% army. I had very, very, very little faith in anything music. Um, growing up, I was a drummer. That was actually my instrument of choice. And so I played drums for uh, a very long time and never really had the guts to actually step up on stage and be the lead and sing. Uh, I always did harmony and played drums and I was fine being in the back of the stage in my comfort zone. And so Army was where it was 100% my mindset was I'm gonna be the best soldier I can. I'm gonna serve this country until the day I die and that's it. Whatever happens after, uh, in between those moments, that it happens. But music was definitely not at the top of the list. So, JP, if you could, so as you talk about the Army piece really being front and center for you, if you can kind of talk about, you know, what happened with you when you found out you were going to Afghanistan and kind of take us through, you know, that process up into the event in which you were injured. Yeah, so my, I believe it was someone in the uh, office of the 428 engineers, and they called me up and said, Lane, we need you to come in. We're actually deploying to Afghanistan and we need to get everybody ready. I was thrilled. My family, not so much. Um, but I had been calling my command every month, pretty much, and asking, are we going yet? Are we going yet? I was very impatient because, uh, and I always say that it may sound weird, but I didn't sign the dotted line to not serve in the capacity that I had already dreamed of serving. I wanted to be as frontline as I possibly could get, and I wanted to serve and protect as much as possible. 
And that's why when I joined the Army, I walked into the recruiter's office and they said, what's, I asked them, what's the most dangerous job right now that I could do that's available? And they said, combat engineer. You can search for bombs and make bombs. I said, that sounds like a blast. Sign me up. So, pun intended. Pun intended. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so, I knew that that was going to be frontline because searching for IEDs, uh, there, nobody goes before that. We find the IED, the route's cleared, then everybody else gets to go freely. So that made sense to me in being able to serve at that capacity. And it was just something that I thought was going to be forever and um, moving forward in this, like, it's crazy to realize the mindset I had at the beginning compared to today and what what's happened in between so oh, absolutely and we want we want to get to that we're going to get to that soon uh, but you know let's talk about the incident and what happened in Afghanistan again in the opening not one not two but three I, I, I'm telling you after a, a, a scare of the first one I'm nowhere to be found ever again in fact it happened to me once it's another story for, for another day That's but funny. yeah so why why in the world um, What's going through your mind after not, you know each IED attack? Um, so I might be a crazier soldier than most, but I really love roller coasters. And when your blast goes off and your truck goes up in the air and comes back down and you're okay, nothing bad happened to you, it feels like a roller coaster. So I enjoyed it, actually. And I looked over at my truck commander and I was like, let's do that again. He said, no. And I realized, though, that in the moment, we were blown up. I don't know how big the IED was, but everybody was OK. So my thought process was, I can do this every single day during this deployment, and I don't care. Because if we're protected, we're safe, and none of my soldiers are dying or getting injured, Go ahead and try to blow us up. We'll, we'll just continue to find IEDs and make sure that people are safe in this area. So the second blast, same thing. Truck was injured. None of us were. And it was an easy day. Just normal, everyday life, getting blown up. Having when, did, when did things change for you, though? So it, you, you kind of have this path. You think, yeah. you know, everybody's invincible, and we see this a lot. Um, when did That's that change? We, we tend to get comfortable in our deployment, and uh, then all of a sudden, Justin Ross, specialist Justin Ross, one of my best friends, was killed by a sniper on mission, and that actually changed everything of who I was. Uh, it actually made me a dark person. It made me want to... I was no longer searching for IEDs. It was actually more on revenge. And because 95, if not more, percent of my missions, I was actually up in the turret um, behind a weapon system. So I had become someone that I never thought I would. And I no longer was there doing my initial mission of wanting to protect the locals and uh, other soldiers coming through on the routes and finding IEDs, it was, who can I take out because they took my brother out. And that was a person that sometimes we come home with. And I was very fortunate to be, and I know this may sound weird, but I was very fortunate to be blown up the third time because that changed who I was going to come home as. I was going to come home bitter with hate and re regret of what happened and everything else. And instead, I came home in a coma. So it's July 2nd. Uh, you're, you're out on patrol. Um, yeah. Go through the process. What, what's happening uh, before the IED hits? So it was actually my day off. I don't know if you know that. It was my day off. And my dad had always told me to please don't volunteer for any extra missions. Well, I'm a rebel, so he was Air Force. I joined Army specifically because I was a rebel, so I wasn't a very good listener. And command came in and said, hey, we need 
extra soldiers for this mission. Today it's a little different than normal, and I volunteered. And I was like, okay, well, get my rifle, my snacks, and everything, and we'll get in the trucks and get on. And I'm in the very last truck of the convoy, so myself and my rifle are pointing to the six, and we leave Fab Pasab, which was the base we were uh, at, and the gate closes, and I had no idea that was going to be the last base again. Hmm. And we go out. We were asked to uh, cover one of the most dangerous routes, which is Route Red Stripe, and we were blown up on that specific route quite a bit. It was a very uh, dangerous route that was covered in the AO. And we cleared it, covered the rest of the routes for the day, came back, and we were clearing it the last time. And while we were gone, they had, the Taliban had enough time to bury a bigger, stronger IED in the same hole that they just had blown us up in that morning. And that hit the truck in front of me that day. So their plan was to make a hole big enough to put the bigger IED in it, and then when we came back, they would hit us again. And they did that within the same day, hit my truck, and it was the first time an IED had ever penetrated an RG-31. It went straight through, and normally the trucks go up and come back down, sometimes missing tires and whatnot, but this one actually flipped my truck onto the passenger side. And so during that blast, my legs were amputated, my left femur snapped in half, my pelvis snapped in half, my spine dislocated from my pelvis, my right arm snapped in half, my right middle finger was amputated, but who needs that? Uh, my four front teeth were knocked out by the steering wheel my head hit the windshield and shattered it. And everything inside my torso was destroyed by shrapnel except for my heart and my left lung. So and that's the last thing that you remember about Afghanistan. I actually remember a, a few minutes after the blast. So my body, since it had snapped in half, my pelvis and my spine were disconnected. My upper torso was laying on my passenger, on my truck commander, and he was yelling, Lane, get off me, I can't breathe, I can't, I can't breathe. I had to use my right arm that was broken in half on the broken part to push myself off of him and pull myself up with I don't even know what over on this side and hold myself off of him so that I wouldn't take out my own soldier. So... Then at that moment, I was able to look down at my pants and I knew, I didn't know I was an amputee at that moment. I just saw my uniform was bloody all the way down my, my pant legs and I was like, well, I'm pretty messed up, I think. <laughs> and I was able to make sure my gunner it was okay as well. And so at that moment, I didn't understand the extent of the damage that my body has sustained, but I knew that I was going to be okay, at least. And within moments of me passing out and actually falling into a coma, my medic and a couple other of my soldiers, uh, my brothers in arms, pulled me out of the truck. They had set me down. This is the part of the story that they all came together and told me that I didn't know because I was in a coma. They had set me down, put tourniquets on, everything. My medic had put six IV bags, pumped them into my body before the helicopter landed. They put me in the stretcher, put me on the bird, and my eyes rolled back, and my medic thought I was gone. Hmm. And then they, the bird took off. So if I can, if I can interject here, yeah, because this is, this is really important as we, as we look at this happening to soldiers, and, and I would just tell you, I, I never realized it. Um, until Operation Proper Exit, and as we had about nine soldiers coming back that were wounded. So you just heard a story. Uh, myself and the division commander, as part of this process, um, we actually you know, went into the classified systems that are downrange where you can pull up exactly what happened 
um, get the medical records and really get a good sense of it. And I would tell you, as we looked at his injuries, as he just described, uh, we were stunned, you know, by the person that was sitting in front of us because everything you described and he went through, as well as the medical procedures, um, it, it was it was impressive to see uh, he had kind of survived that. The thing that I really want to point out, though, that that was powerful for us is, you know, we laid out the map, we got all the classified reports, we got everything, and as we as we talked to these warriors who were coming back through their own journey, what we realized is almost to the individual, they knew, like, all they remember is the incident and fade to black. And so now they have this with them. Um, and so for us, I would just tell you, through your journey, that was a thing that stuck with my division commander and myself, was being able to share all of that with you uh, from everybody's perspective, you know, the investigation as it laid out, because it was, it's just a black hole. They don't know. Yeah. And so it was huge. And, and I think you brought up something pretty important here. Um, you know, once you're wounded uh, to the extent that, that you are, technically, you know, you're, you're not on active duty anymore. Right. Um, and we're, we're talking about uh, the information that goes into it was classified. Now, it was declassified Absolutely. Um, for, for your briefing. Uh, but the important thing is to remember is how the Army looks at our wounded warriors, how the Army looks at everybody, and that is that they're soldiers for life. And so I think this program is super important because you know, you're entitled. You should be entitled to that information uh, right. regarding what happened to you. And, and I, I, you know, as a uh, retired Navy guy, I had no idea um, that this program was happening. I think it's really important. I'm, I'm glad uh, that we're learning about it for sure. Um, how important is that program for, for you personally? Uh, I, so 30 years of service, significant amount of deployments myself. Um, and it's, and it's why we pushed for this program. We did uh, two of them during that tour. So one at the beginning, one at the end. Uh, it's critical. It was, it was one of the most fulfilling things I've ever been a part of. And then the other piece uh, when he came through is seeing him engage uh, with about 500. Now this is all pre-COVID, right? So we had a big theater, 500 soldiers in there about eight or nine of our warriors up there kind of talking through what had happened to them and hearing JP tell his story on uh, taking something that was so heavy and dark and then you know just being able to describe how he had turned that into a positive and continued to serve and even though he was out uh, it stuck with me and I would tell you as, as everybody piled out of that uh, theater there, there wasn't a dry eye in the house so very impactful. So you're recovering, um, and I, I think it us to say, hey, you know what? I'm I'm going to go this alone. You know, I'm, I'm I I can recover. I can do it. I've got the perseverance. I've got the drive uh, to do this. Um, did you go it alone? <laughs> if I did, I would not be here today. <laughs> I tried very hard to go alone, and uh, the Army built me to be the toughest soldier I possibly could be, and I held up to that standard as best as I possibly could. But when someone goes through something like this, it's best not to go it alone. Um, in fact, the Army is the best military force in the world because we don't operate just as one person. We operate as a team. So that should be in all aspects of life, including tragedy. You have your teammates there, whether it's family, friends, uh, faith, whatever it is to help give you that strength to overcome. And that's, thankfully, I did not push any of that away. And that's what gave me the strength to keep pushing forward, to keep taking it step by step and just rolling through the therapy, rolling through everything that I had to overcome. You know, I kind of jumped ahead a little bit. Um, you know, again, you were in a coma, uh, and I know that uh, over the course of your recovery, you've had 25 operations, but um, you have an interesting story about while he was in the coma, right? 
Yeah, so one, we'll just, we got to set the record straight because as, uh, as we actually did uh, PT this morning, uh, JP had him out there, uh, you know, going through holistic health and fitness with the CIMT team uh, and about 10 soldiers who are kind of overcoming their own obstacles uh, in, in the fitness realm. And so 28, 28 surgeries, surgeries. Um, 28. a trick them on it. And, and, um, <laughs> and so it was... It was it was really fascinating, and I you know I, I read your book a couple times, and even though I know you, it's just it amazes me how much I didn't know. Um, and even you, you talked about you know an older gentleman who had kind of come in um, and kind of always came around and said hello to folks and was always saying hey you're going to get better. And there's a there's a dark point where you're like just get out of here. Yeah. How can you possibly know? Um, what I'm going through, and if if you could tell that story, I think it, it's uh, it's a pretty powerful story. Yeah, it was. So I was laying in my hospital bed, and I have tubes hooked up to me, and uh, taking pain medications and stuff because I, I, the accident is all recent and everything. And a gentleman, and I believe also his wife, who most likely did the baking, they would bring cookies every week to warriors in the hospital. And this was at Walter Reed in um, D.C. before they moved to the new building that they're in now. They would come every week, and he would say, you're going to be all right, soldier. You're going to do just fine, and you're going to be able to get past this. And I would continue to hear this regularly. And then one day it just hit me. I was like, you don't know what I'm going through, so please just stop telling me everything's going to be okay. Like, it just built out the frustration of people saying everything's going to be okay you don't know i'm in you don't know my situation and all of a sudden he was like well actually i do and lifted up a pant leg and he was an amputee himself and that blew me away because he was at least 712 years old no um <laughs> he was probably in his 80s and it just caught me off guard but it it left an imprint that if he could be doing what he does every single day, he's still serving. He comes to the hospital every week. He's on a prosthetic and nobody even knows it. And if he can do this and accomplish whatever he sets forth, then I certainly can too. And he was a big example from the get-go that kind of planted those seeds of, you know what, maybe I can get through this. And I had my ups and downs on that roller coaster ride of therapy and healing and everything that that um, I went through during that time, but that definitely left a big imprint on who I am today because he could do it. And I, and I think you, you glossed over it a bit. Um, so you talked about your medic when your eyes rolled back, they thought you faded multiple times on the operating table. You know, you describe how, yep, they thought you had coded out. Yeah. Um, as you were in a coma for two months and your family's there and even your father um, and then you know Walter Reed incredible care um, yeah. to a point where you know they're, they're talking to the family members that hey you, you have to understand even if he comes out of a coma here here's what you're probably gonna see and that is your, your son may be a vegetable kind of for the rest of his life and you need to be prepared for that and so the ex extent of your injuries were significant and I would tell you we, we're getting this on Facebook live one of the big questions is you know as you see these insurmountable obstacles in front of you what what does your where does your internal drive come from like what helps you overcome such massive mountains if you will my faith because we try to deal with things on our own and we find out that we fall short. We can't, we're not able to do it. And even sometimes in some cases, even working together with family and friends that are, they are trying to support and trying to lift you up. There's still something that is not giving you that strength that you truly personally need to press on because you can hear the positive comments left and right, but until that strength that's inside actually starts lighting a fire, 
you're not going to be able to do anything. And I started realizing that for me personally, when I gave the whole situation to God and I gave it to understanding that he's stronger than I am, that then I can overcome all things and I can literally see where this is going to take me in where I couldn't take it myself. And trying to be the hua hua soldier that I was and rely on other things to give me that strength, it didn't work out. I, as mentioned in my book, I almost took my life a dozen times. I wanted to check out. It didn't matter what good things were being said to me left and right. I wanted to check out because I would look in the mirror and I would see someone that just didn't deserve to be here, didn't have a purpose, and being a half a man, didn't feel like there was any need to continue going forward in this life. And knowing that everything that I used to do was with my legs, I kept dwelling on that. Oh, I don't have my legs anymore. Well, now I don't have a purpose. I don't have my legs anymore. Now I can't run. I can't do basketball. I can't do track. I can't do drums. I can't do this. I those thoughts were there just boiling up trying to take me out of this world. And the only reason I'm still here is because God said, I still have a purpose for you. And he was not wrong because I'm still here almost, this July will be 10 years, will be my 10 year anniversary of being blown up. And I'm still here stronger than even when I was in the army. So. Well, you know, that's, that's our topic, resiliency, adapting and overcoming. And, and you said there was a period there, um, you know, when you came out of the coma to when you were, uh, to, when, to when you transformed. Um, how long did that period take? Uh, a year, two years? So I was hospitalized for about a year and then uh, finally got to go to, to the Center for the Intrepid in San Antonio, Texas. And that's where the therapeutic process begins, where they start uh, practically teaching you how to get back into a new normal, they call it, of living. Um, they literally have an apartment set up where they can teach you how to roll throughout the apartment, do the dishes, cook, all everything. Um, it was actually pretty impressive. Um, then once they, the healing and everything is over with in regards to the damage actually physically done to my legs because I had burns and broken bones, everything had to heal. Then it was time to get into prosthetics. And so my first day in prosthetics, they believed that uh, I was able to handle it because my left femur snapped in half. And so I had an external fixator on that femur and they believed it was healed. So we took it the, the fixator off and I healed for a couple of weeks of the incision or the wounds and put on prosthetic and it snapped in half right in the prosthetic. So my mountains, if you will, my speed bumps in this healing process were not over from the very beginning. They continued to happen and it would be good times and then bad times and then good times and then bad times. And the therapeutic process was difficult. My therapist, I'll never forget him, Fred, he was an awesome, awesome therapist. He already retired, but he pushed me so hard because he did, he did exactly what every warrior needed, which was, he didn't care that I was injured. I'm a soldier, we're going to get through this, and you're going to come out on top. And even though I told him I would be done with therapy in six months, he, and he laughed at me because he said, no, double amputees are in here for two years. That's how long it takes to go through this process and learn how to walk again. I was like, no, I'm going to be out in six months. And I'm honored that I even have to this day that record over at San Antonio for the fastest double amputee in and out of therapy in six months. But I had my ups and downs during that whole process. There was uh, burn sites that didn't want to heal. So wearing prosthetics, I would shred the burn site and the leg would actually bleed inside the prosthetic. Moments like that kept on happening up and down. 
And so it was just where I needed to tell myself, okay, we're going to get through this. We have our faith, our family, and everything mentally that the Army taught us and taught me, which is never give up, never surrender. We can do this. It doesn't matter what obstacles come. And I took that to heart and continue to fight and continue every day to fight every single day. Where was the turning point where, where you realized that, you know what, I am going to be able to get through this. There are people here to support and help me. Um, I, I don't need to have these suicidal thoughts anymore. That's a good question. I feel like that turning point started probably the day that I got my prosthetics. No, actually it was probably about a month after I got my prosthetics. Because even though I felt amazing when I got into my prosthetics, now imagine you're in a wheelchair for a, a year. It's not comfortable. It's not, a, it's not a fun situation. So I'm this height for the whole year. When people talk to me, I'm looking up. You get used to that. And all of a sudden, for the first time in a long time, I'm back on my feet, per se. And I felt amazing. But it, it still wasn't, I didn't feel complete. Because even though, yes, I got prosthetics and I'm starting to feel, uh, look better, whatever may be the case in my eyes, that it wasn't until I kind of, if you allow, I had a moment where I was like, God, if you don't give me a purpose, I'm done. This is cool and all, the whole prosthetics and all this stuff and people helping left like here and there. And it's cool, but I need a purpose or I'm done. And when he spoke up and said, grab a guitar, start music, that's all I needed to hear. That started the purpose because he knows the passion that I have inside. I love, love, love music. So that's where the suicidal thoughts started to disappear because now it wasn't me focusing on, well, I have prosthetics and I'm trying to better myself. Now I have a purpose and I have something to reach for. And so that's when I believe all thoughts of suicide disappeared. You know, um, one of the surgeries was a tracheotomy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, you know, you said you were a drummer, percussionist. Mm. Um, and, and clearly, you know, you pick up a guitar, you can start playing the guitar, that's, that's cool. But how do, you, how do you get past a tracheotomy to be where you are today? That's pretty amazing. That was an interesting journey that they told me when they took this thing out, first off, when they took everything out, the tubes and everything, to help um, allow me to breathe, they took that all out, and then they put this little, like, cone or whole thing in there that I could press it and then I could actually speak. If I let go, there was no ability to speak at all because the air exited here instead of coming out of my mouth. And so they said, you're going to have to go through speech therapy and learn how to talk again. That's kind of embarrassing at 23 years old, but you do what you got to do and you move on. And so they said that I was going to go through this process of learning how to talk, allowing this thing to heal, and uh, most likely they had told my parents and myself that the damage that was done in my throat, my vocal cords and everything, he's probably gonna talk funny and he'll never be able to sing. So if we can, like, as you describe this, because even before you talk about music and drums, although I do find there's an interesting story how you went from from drums to guitar, probably not appropriate for here, so I won't mention it. Um, but really dark times. I mean, you, you were describing obstacles that most of us will never face. Um, suicidal ideations and suicide. You know, what would, what would you say uh, to somebody um, to kind of help them get through that? I would say that this moment right now, if to, I would like them to compare it, if they would like, to my 
situation that I was in. I was hospitalized for a year. That is quarantine. I wasn't getting to live a normal life, getting to do the things that we're used to, being out in public freely. and do. I was stuck in a hospital bed or a wheelchair for a very long time. That I would consider to relate to a quarantine. So knowing that my time in the hospital was only for a year, it was for a certain time frame. It didn't last forever. Just like this quarantine nation is not going to last forever. It's going to get, it's going to pass, and we will be able to get back to what will know we would like to. But right now, this is just a mountain we're climbing. As a country, as everything has changed, having to mostly stay uh, quarantined or in our homes, distancing, social distancing, all of those things, this is just for a time period. It will pass. Keep taking one foot, walking in front of the other, even if you're on prosthetic feet. And keep moving forward. Keep living life. Keep pursuing the things that you enjoy. If you're stuck at home, pick up an instrument. Those things are fun. So, so let's talk about that. Because I will tell you, is, um, you know, talking to your dad, hearing about you as a drummer, shifting to guitar, and singing, and being told you're not only you're never going to speak correctly again, but singing. And I, and I will just tell you, the thing that struck me the most is uh, we had you, matter of fact, I was sitting next to a young soldier um, and you sang, I think, what was it, uh, Over the Mountain? Only a Mountain. Only a Mountain. And, um, and you had a photo up of you laying in the bed when you were, you were hurt and you kind of told that story and you, you sang that song. The soldier next to me literally lost it, started crying. And I was like, he's pretty good. I, I don't know why, like, I was really confused just to be candid. And, and so once they composed themselves, I, you know, I asked. I said, you know, what? And so she, she told her own personal story of a sibling who went through a car crash that was very similar. And so, um, and she just thought your song really was powerful and it just has an impact uh, that I rarely see with folks. And so with that, how do you get from not being able to speak to picking up a guitar and next thing you know, you're, you're singing at the inauguration, you know, for Obama? Yeah, it is. Help, help me understand that, man. That seems like a, a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, definitely a miracle. The fact that I was told you're not going to be able to do this. You're not going to be able to sing. And knowing that that was a passion, I didn't have the guts to do it uh, on stage or anything, but knowing that someone told me I wasn't going to be able to do it, I was like, you know what? It's time to prove some people wrong. And again, having my faith, my family and friends, everybody backing me up and giving me that strength to, to work on what I would like to overcome, uh, grabbed a guitar and started learning. Now, it's a little difficult when you're missing a digit. So I had to readjust, adapt, and overcome. I was taught that. I don't know by who, but um, probably the Army. So normally you would play with the guitar with these two fingers, and I had to switch it to this one and learn how to pick going like this. But it was, it, I just relied on my musical background as the drums, because the drums, you carry the beat. Well, some guitarists can't play the guitar and carry the beat at the same time, but as a drummer, I was able to figure it out quickly, and uh, I don't know all of the chords, but I, I've done a lot of uh, studying, and just I play one song at a time and learn as I go, and the crazy thing is, the, the doctor said, I, my memory, my mind is not going to be all there. And I'll forget 
so many things, just ask my wife. But I can memorize a song before the end of the day, before I go to bed. Explain that. I don't know. It's pretty awesome. That's a miracle. So it's, it, it's music, and it's my passion, and I love it. And uh, I don't know. I just feel that when you go from drums to guitar, it's just another instrument, and it's all music. So, so you yeah. gotta, you got to tell me, man, how was it performing for two different presidents at an inauguration, American Idol, America's Got Talent? I mean, it's, it's a pretty impressive resume, man. Uh, let's just say as a kid, I never thought I would have the guts to do any of that. And especially when I first got my prosthetics, I did not think that I would be doing that at all. Uh, but it was pretty amazing to just be uh, up there and just showing the people that I have a passion for music and performing and singing and hearing how they react is just uh, inspiring in itself. It, knowing that I get to inspire and it's just something that I hope and pray that I get to do every day of my life because performing, whether it's for the presidential inaugurations or um, on shows or just regular concerts and with other artists and stuff, it's, it's what I love to do. So let's get a little bit into some of the, you know, some of the questions that we have on Facebook. We, um, but Mark Nodal uh, wrote us, uh, said, what would you say to leaders in initial entry training environments who are trying to cultivate resiliency and the warrior ethos into those uh, whose army careers are just beginning. And I want to piggyback on that a little bit regarding the mindset of adapting and overcoming. Um, you know, what are maybe some tangible specific techniques that an individual should use uh, to get themselves, you know, into that frame of mind? Yeah, so for me personally, I use four uh, pillars, if you will, to help with all of that. I pay attention to Faith, social, physical, and mental. Those are the four pillars that I use as a foundation for me to be able to overcome all obstacles um, and better myself as a person every single day. And as leaders, they can take that to their, their troops and show them that we need to be, we need to have a strong foundation internally so that we can overcome and be the best we possibly can, no matter what we may face, whether we break an ankle or um, something tragic happens in our lives or our families or anything. There's gonna be trials that we face that we can overcome. We just need to make sure before that happens, we have a strong foundation. So socially, you wanna surround yourself by people that are like-minded, that you will lift them up just as much as they'll lift you up. Mentally, make sure that you're mentally tough, able to handle different things. Yes, that, I'm not saying we're not allowed to cry. Trust me, I've had plenty of tears in my life. But mentally able to handle things, make your, help yourself uh, become smarter, allow your mind to be the best that it possibly can. Physically, that was pretty easy. Keep up with your physical fitness, right? That is kind of a must in the military. And I'm not in the military, and I'm a double amputee, and that's still a must for me because the Army instilled that in me to remain physically fit. And so I work out six days a week. Three of those days are twice-a-day workouts. So, And I'm the only double amputee you'll find in the gym. So knowing that physical fitness has a lot to do with the rest of that, actually, believe it or not. When you feel good because you were working out and you feel healthy and you look healthy, that helps maintain the rest of the stuff and allow it to grow. And I would tell you, just this morning, uh, when we were in the gym, he was getting after the, uh, the new Army combat fitness test. It was, uh, it was quite the sight to see. Yeah, it was. The, I was telling one of the soldiers as we were doing the new push-ups that you all do, 
very interesting. But uh, as we were doing those, I told him, look at my left prosthetic. And he looked at it and I was like, you do realize that during the push-up position and the, uh, what is it, the prone? No. The plank. The plank, there you go. The plank position, I have to base all of my weight on my right leg because my left prosthetic will actually bend and collapse if I put any weight on it in that position. So adapting and overcoming and still getting the job done is like the heart of who I am. And so I was showing them that they can adapt and overcome no matter what their situation is and they can accomplish the physical fitness part of our journey as soldiers is actually the easiest and, and the, what's the word I'm looking for? It's most attainable. Yes, because that's only a small percentage of time that they spend doing the physical part. The rest of it is being the best soldier they possibly can and doing their job to the 100%. So if you do the actual calculations, you're not doing a lot of physical fitness necessarily. So give it all you got. Give it 100%, push it, accomplish what the goals are, what the mission is in regards to physical fitness, and keep pushing forward. And again, if I can do it as a double amputee, then I know that they can do it 100%. Now, we talked a little bit about internal drive earlier, but I'm going to make fun of myself a little bit here. Um, <laughs> you know, speaking personally, I've, I've thought about writing a book. I've thought about writing a song. I've thought about... You know, noodling on the keyboard and starting to play some things, and and uh, certainly I think more about exercise than perhaps uh, actually doing it myself. Is this um, point? You gotta start somewhere. So, you gotta start somewhere. Yeah. So the, I mean, did, we know your life changed because of the incident, but would you say that your life changed for the better? One hundred percent. If if I could say even more, so you allow whatever tragedy you face to give you that drive to push and do better and say, I may have gone through this, but I'm gonna come out on top. I may have lost my legs, but I'm gonna be a better person, a better man, a better human slash robot than I ever have imagined. And I'm gonna come out on top. And it's bettered my life having that mindset and realizing that I've gone through quite a few tragic things in my life but I did not allow those to defeat me. And I have truly come out better in all aspects of life. It's, I love telling people that you're gonna find yourself in a moment in life where you can look back and see that you've gone through some crazy stuff in life. That's just a part of life. But where you are today or where you will be is gonna be an amazing sight to see because you didn't give up. And I bring myself to tears sometimes, allowing myself to have that moment where I'll look back or I'll read my book again and realize where I came from. And it is such an honor and a blessing to be where I am today through all of that. Well, uh, we, were, we were talking uh, before the, the webinar today. Um, congratulations, I guess, is, is due regarding the album. Uh, yes. You've got one in the queue. Yes, yeah. working on an album with my producer uh, out in Houston, Billy, and it is definitely turn, turning out to be way cooler than I expected my music would go. So it's, I'm very, very much looking forward to this new album. So, so talk about giving back, though. What, why, why is it important? You, you've got this career that, that you're looking to, to maybe really take off. Um, why is it important for you to do things like this and, and give back to the, the Army community and others? Because I'm an American patriot. That's kind of what we should be doing as Americans. We're the most giving country on the planet. And you can't be the most giving country on the planet with the most ungiving people in it. So as a patriot, as a fellow soldier who signed the dotted line to serve and protect, I take that very wholeheartedly. And my plan was to leave this world serving my country. And even though I may not be doing it in uniform anymore, 
and I don't have to shave. <laughs> so it's, it's always going to be in my heart to serve. And that will continue to be the drive until I actually do leave this world. So I'd just uh, like to add here, I had talked to General Funk um, before we came out here, and we just want to let you know that uh, it's an honor to have you here. We also um, want to offer you the opportunity to be an ambassador for not only TRADOC, but the Army uh, at the upcoming Warrior Games, which will be at Disney this year. Also, not a bad place to be. Not a bad place. Uh, where we will get you tied into kind of the opening slash closing ceremony uh, to get up and, you know, be part of that. And probably most importantly, you know, to serve um, not only being a soldier for life, uh, but others like you who have kind of gone through your journey. And so I look forward to having you as part of that, man. Thank you. That would be an honor. I'm very, very grateful for just thinking of me and being able to do that opportunity. That's what I dream about, so thank you. So, so JP, uh, Sergeant Major, again, a fantastic discussion. Um, you know, it, it took a lot for you to adapt and overcome and actually get here today from San Antonio through the, the, the storms in Texas yes. to, to New Orleans. You drove, I think it was about eight hours. Then you flew here. Um, and it's not the greatest of weather here in Virginia, and, and here you are. Um, we, we really appreciate the fact that, that you made it out here. And I, I just want to you know, turn the floor over to you. What are some of the things that, that you want uh, all of us who have been watching and participating in this conversation to, to come away with? I would say a couple of things. First, don't allow others to give you a title. And what I mean by that is, people call me a wounded warrior. I don't see that I'm wounded. In fact, I have brand new armor that's stronger than most legs that I know. And I feel stronger today than I ever did in my whole entire life. So I jokingly tell people, if you get a paper cut, we don't call you paper cut boy for the rest of your life. So if anything, I'm just a warrior. I'm not a wounded warrior. And mentally speaking, if you call someone a negatory, I wouldn't say negatory, but a word that does not show strength, if you will, as wounded does not show strength, and you call them that for the rest of your life, what are they supposed to think? So mentally, you want to lift them up, but it's kind of hard when you put that kind of a title on. So I'm, I'm trying to tell the world that we're just warriors, and we will be for the rest of our lives because every day is a fight and we overcome so much daily that I tell people they may see who I am on the outside but they don't even know the struggles that I still deal with internally that I deal with so if I can overcome all of these different things and there's it's not just me I know quite a few warriors that overcome their battles daily and I have friends that humble me that are triple amputees, quadruple amputees, burn victims. So if all of us are able to overcome these trials and tragedies and things that we've gone through, that yes, they are tough and everybody has their own battles. But we can all overcome the battles together. Fantastic. Thanks, JP. Really appreciate it. Uh, you are a warrior and a soldier, always. Thank you. Um, Sergeant Major, your, your final thoughts? Yeah. Honor to have you here, uh, and more importantly, and uh, as most folks know, we're gonna we're gonna bring you in. We're gonna get you on the road, and we're gonna get you out there talking to those new soldiers coming in the army, at each of our centers of excellence. And uh, I have no doubt uh, it is gonna be a huge advantage uh, as we get you out there. So thanks That's again. Awesome. Thank you, Sergeant Major. Well, unfortunately, all good things must come to an end, but this doesn't mean that your conversations should stop. Uh, again, as I mentioned before, talk about what you heard here today and have those honest conversations within your squad. Have these conversations with your family. Uh, your family is also part of this Army team, so it's extremely important to keep the conversation going. 
But we will have another one soon. Uh, and join us for our next LPD webinar on the 18th of March, 1100 Eastern, which will feature uh, four outstanding soldiers. These leaders, who happen to be women, will talk to us about what it takes to navigate an Army career. Until then, thanks for watching. Again, keep the conversation going and build your cohesive team. Victory starts here.